everybody, and welcome to episode 006 of Mastication Nation, the podcast that brings you all that is wonderful about food with just a hint of cheese. We're back. <laughs> We've uh, dusted the dusted the dust off the microphones. Yeah. Oh, you will. That was a that was a long, long break, and I apologize. Summer break. Summer yeah, hiatus. Exactly. No one in the network television or radio world is producing in the summer, so why the hell should we? Yeah, we should have just played some reruns, but uh, that's <laughs> we only have five episodes. <laughs> exactly. You know, the greatest would... hits. Just put on a greatest yeah. hits episode. <laughs> uh, but we are back. Uh, it. I think it's slightly ironic that even while we were in the same time zone, we only managed to record one episode just because life was getting in the way. We did manage to record an episode of Attaché in LA, which is epic and will be coming out shortly. And you were there. And I was. you helped out. You were very helpful indeed. And we had some amazing culinary adventures, which you will see on camera. Yeah, absolutely. Just um, a few. By, the, by the time this episode's out, it will be live. So they will, they're self-referential, which is always nice. <laughs> I think that um, it is, as always the case, it, when we're, I mean, the summer we were doing, you were doing so much and I was doing so much, even though we were in the in the same country, um, unfortunately, the podcast was something that trying to carve out a consistent one and a half hours to record was uh, highly unlikely given the amount of travel we were both doing. This is true. And also, we were hoping to have a guest on this episode, but uh, it didn't work out, but that's okay. We've shifted the focus. This is going to be a good one. But before we get to the sixth episode, let's talk about the fifth episode, I was a little worried that eggplant would be considered a little bit dull, a little bit innocuous, and I voiced those fears at the beginning of the episode, but people have really responded, and it's something that people eat. Yeah, I think the I think that the point from the last episode that we made, which was, I mean, everyone knows what it is, even though if anybody doesn't like have it straight up by itself, but it seems to be fairly ubiquitous across multiple different um, cuisines. And I think the feedback we got from social media just, just sums that up. Yeah, it, which is nice. It's great. I think people have really been engaged with it. And it is weirdly one of the most divisive ingredients that we've had so far. I feel which, like we should say that about every episode. <laughs> yeah, this is true. And and people were great about uh, commenting on Twitter, and we'll get into one of those, uh, or actually all of those in just a second. But it, I thought it was funny, the timing of this tweet from one of my favorite comedians, Jim Gaffigan, who the majority of his specials, and if not his entire comedy routine, are based around food, which is probably why I like him so much. But just a few days ago, he said, it still confuses me why anyone would voluntarily eat eggplant. But I, I think we did a good job of explaining why people should and would eat uh, eggplant this on a regular basis. This is also coming from the guy who is hot pocket. Yes, he built his entire comedic platform on the savory toaster pastry that is the hot pocket. But uh, our good friend Paul Papa Dimitriou, who has been on many attaché adventures, who does uh, all of the hard work on the Layovers podcast with me, uh, sent us two very interesting tweets. The first one is he is uh, part Greek. He's many, many different nationalities. He's a little bit like Jason Bourne. He said in Greece, this is regar uh, regarding... Um, Moussaka. Moussaka, that's the one. Thank you. Uh, it's more, more than often bechamel. Custard is mainly in the Balkans, but they also sometimes, to his horror, forget or forgo eggplant, which to me then isn't a moussaka. So I, I, I appreciate and endorse your horror, Paul. 
He also said next time you, Will, are in London that we have to go to Dinings, which is, uh, I think our friend Greg has been there, to taste the Nasu Dengaku, which is miso-glazed aubergine. Uh, that sounds I, amazing. Yeah, I, I don't know Dinings at all. Um, I'm assuming, uh, I was I was trying to read this tweet being like, what kind of food is this? And then with the miso glaze, I'm like, okay, it's it's either South it's either, um, uh, Asian or Asian fusion. So I'm guessing it's... Uh, I think Nasu Dengaku has got to be Japanese. It sounds like it, and miso is such a staple of Japanese uh, cuisine. So definitely, can't if tell you, you when are... I'm next going to be there, but yeah, sure, let's go. Well, you know, you never know where the wind will take you. Exactly. Uh, I think if any of you are in the UK, actually, if any of you have been to Dinings, let us know. I want to know more about it because it sounds amazing. Paul's always talking about it, but we haven't figured out a way to make it happen. Twitter user at now, how do you reckon you pronounce this one? Fee arrange F E A double R A N G E. Anyway sent us this beautiful couple of pictures saying, uh, hey guys, my favorite way of eating eggplant is this when I'm in Hong Kong. Problem is, I don't know what it is. It's It looks like it's on a stick of some description. Uh, can you tell us what it is? Because it looks amazing. And it looks like it's four for 10 Hong Kong dollars, which is like less than a dollar US. Yeah, and almost like a pastry. And I'm guessing maybe it's like either reformat, uh, reformed uh, eggplant into a onto a stick or uh, is it um, some sort of dough with eggplant in it? I, I kind of don't know what this is. But I've Alex never I- ever seen that in the streets of Hong Kong, yeah. but I want to know more about it. Exactly. And Alex and I go to Hong Kong enough that, um, you know, we can try and seek this out because um, maybe it's a, it's a culinary delicacy that we're missing all these years. Yeah. And I really don't like missing culinary delicacies. That makes <laughs> me, puts me in a bad mood. We were talking in the, actually pretty much every episode, but pr- primarily in the last couple of episodes about beer. And I was commenting on the US beer situation and how it's very craft beer centric and uh, I did manage to find, and I've had it before, by the way, because I just spent six weeks in California. The It's, um, it's uh, Kona Brewing. Kona, thank you. Yeah. Uh, these guys do great work. Their loggers are fantastic. They do a, uh, a case of, of their samplers. I, I don't know if we mentioned this in the last episodes, but I know I've bitched to you about it when we were over in California, is that a lot of American beers at the moment, or at least the ones that are popular, are super high alcohol content compared yeah. to just a standard lager. But the, the you know the the Kona uh, Longboard, which is their lager, which I really am a fan of, is only like four point four point six at the most, and it's 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 a really good beer. But the other ones were like I was introduced by my sister in law to the Dinogonizer. Yeah, which is yeah. I think is it is it Lagunitas who makes the denogonizer or is it uh, no, the, it's, the guys it's, in it's, San Leandro? Yeah, I think it's Drake's. Drake's, that's it. Yeah. Anyway, this is like nine point X percent and just it's good. It's it's trying to be uh, Pliny the Elder, which I also tried for the first time thanks to my uh, my brother in law John. It was good. I enjoyed it. Anyway, a little off the topic, but the reason why I'm bringing this up is because Damien Hogan at uh, Damien underscore Hogan sent us a tweet saying, this is a decent lager you can get in the UK. And it's, have you ever heard of these guys St. Austell? No, from but uh, I looked it up and Cornwall. it seems like the whole branding is around, yeah, sort of that surf culture. So uh, somewhat serendipitous with, with Kona, the whole Hawaii surfing thing. Yeah, I feel like Cornwall would make sense, um, you know, anywhere that's slightly warmer than the rest of the country and you're doing outdoor activities. The last thing I want is a really super heavy or high alcohol beer and lagers and pilsners are just, it just makes more and more sense, especially when you're also, when you're eating, you don't want anything to completely overwhelm the food. So 
this uh, looks good. Yeah, I want to try it next time I'm back. Or, or Damien, if you're in any way involved, um, you know, we do take shipments. So uh, if you yes. want to s- send them Large to- simplins, shipments of free bears is always good. The, this this particular one is Koref, and it's a, it's a Cornish lager by these guys, St. Alstil, who it looks like they do a stout, an American pale ale, Indian pale ale, pale ale session IPAs, all that. All, the, they, the whole cornucopia of beer offerings so you know i look forward to trying it i wonder if you can just buy it in the supermarket anyway last tweet will's head is finally deflated from this particular tweet from from my good friend keir whitaker who also has an outstanding podcast called the back to front show available wherever fine podcasts are made available uh and keir said so at mastication nation might be my new favorite podcast cube dweller knows his stuff but will's food history is incredible <laughs> thank you very much kier it is uh it's something that i uh i don't know where it came from but uh i have daily challenges with the american uh, game show jeopardy to keep my mind sharp <laughs> yeah but uh so thank you guys for taking the time we still have not identified our mystery itunes commenter from the dim sum episode if you are that person, please identify yourself on Twitter. We want to thank you uh, properly because that really was great. We still don't know who you are. Yeah. Uh, what are you drinking, Will? Uh, well, it's 11 in the morning here uh, in, in California. Um, so no no hard alcohol, just a, a bit of Diet Coke. And, and no one's called me up on it for drinking Diet Coke as much as I do on a, on a so-called food podcast. But um, it's the way I start my San Francisco day. So, uh, it, it cause you don't drink coffee, do you? I don't drink coffee. I am, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm averse to dairy. And so, uh, you know, I just don't go down that route and I feel like uh, black coffee would just be too much jet fuel for me. So I am a diet Coke fiend. You drink diet Coke. How is diet Coke any different from black coffee? Or just, you mean in terms of its palatability? Palatability, uh, uh, caffeine, I think is a little less. Um, yeah, I think they're pretty much comparable. Uh, uh, black coffee around here again is uh, kind of like the alcohol around the beer around here extremely high in volatility yeah that's true i could not exist without coffee i drink it cold and bitter just like i like my women uh <laughs> no i drink it black I, I drink it black and it's weird because i used to have it with uh milk and sugar a lot of milk and a lot of sugar and then about five years ago i went on a crazy weight loss thing and cut out dairy and i haven't really been able to enjoy coffee with milk since it's kind of weird anyway cool this is like the episode where we uh, find ourselves walking down many many a uh <laughs> side road i am drinking a glass of kirkland rioja reserve 2012 now kirkland as i'm sure you all know is costco's own brand and before you wine snobs jump on my face it's really 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 good it's one of the best Rilkas I've ever had. And but I'm assuming that it's it's a bit like um, Charles Shaw here at Trader Joe's. Does the does the ingredients of that Rilka change from season no. to season? Okay. No. And I'll tell you why. Because I just got the newest, and I think it's the penultimate, if not the last, uh, sadly, epi- uh, episode um, issue of Lucky Peach, which is David Chang at Al's uh, wonderful Food Quarterly magazine. And they had a whole thing on Costco. And if you don't know about Costco, Kirkland is their, is their in-store brand, like I mentioned. But it's, it's, it's usually extremely high-quality brands and products rebranded as Kirkland. They buy them en masse. And it's, it's the, it goes the same for their wine. It's the same for their, uh, for their alcohol. And in this, ep- in this issue of Lucky Peach, they got all these nuggets about 
Costco. And one of them is this. Costco is the world's number one wine retailer. Costco jockeys with Emirates Airlines to be the number one wholesale purchaser of Dom Perignon in the world. So they are the biggest purchaser and the biggest retailer of wine in the entire world. So they can go to pretty much any wine producer on the planet and buy for very small cost these very, very good wines and then sell them to us at, you know, this this bottle is six quid in, in England, six dollars in the US. Even though it has to come all the way from Spain to California, it's still six bucks. And it's it's really, really good. Um, and if you happen to grab the episode of Lucky Peach, it's it I keep saying episode issue of Lucky Peach, they have uh really top alcohol experts reviewing the Kirkland brand single malt scotch, the vodka, the bourbon, the tequila, and just saying it's uh, it's really, really good. And they're trying to figure out which top shelf brand it actually is. And they found that the Scotch whiskey is Dalmore. Okay. <laughs> which is pretty amazing. Uh, so yeah, really, really impressive. And it's good. So I'm enjoying it. We have not recorded since July the 12th. So a month and a bit. You must have eaten some pretty amazing stuff since then. I have. I have. And, and the reason that we haven't recorded is because we've been traveling. And so sampling all that's on offer around uh, the these greater united states has been high on the to, to, on the to-do list so i was thinking about this and it's like a laundry list i mean we were both in um in new england doing the pan mass challenge by cried uh about two weeks yes, ago and you can still sponsor will by going to pmc.org and searching for his name and well, sponsoring him yep it, even though the race is or not the race the ride is done Go and sponsor Will. It was an amazing, <laughs> life-changing thing, which we'll talk more about later. Yes. Um, but um, summertime in New England means fried seafood. And uh, I got definitely got my fill. And, but, you know, the best thing I did was a couple days after the PMC, we were down at a beach house just relaxing. Uh, and uh, we went and bought some live lobster or some lobsters and, and uh, had, you know, the, the classic lobster boil. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, it was fantastic. And, and it was very reminiscent of the fact that our at my wife and I's wedding, we had uh, lobster there as well. A traditional New England uh, clam bake, technically. Uh, but everyone had lobster. So that was, from a sentimental point of view, you know, one of the best things I've eaten recently. But I was also in Boulder, Colorado last week and... Uh, Went to a restaurant um, that was uh, seafood oriented, which is a bit weird for Boulder being as far inland as it, as it is. Uh, but it was just absolutely stellar. Uh, we did these um, towers of seafood, um, these towers of uh, shellfish, and which had you know, some incredible uh, Alaskan crab, uh, oysters, uh, ceviche, all this kind of stuff. And the best thing I had that night was a halibut ceviche which was absolutely Ooh. stunning yeah that, i, have to say I do it. like ceviche i, I do, do like well. ceviche it's one of those things where you see it on the menu and you look around the restaurant going this is either going to be amazing or i'm going to die exactly uh, but uh, when it's done well it's done fantastic yeah well so those two things delicious. are kind of seafood uh, facing for me how about yourself i enjoyed my new england sojourn food wise as well i think it was great i we went down to la like i said and filmed an episode of attache i mean i spent six weeks eating about three thousand calories a day mercifully i was probably burning about 29.50 with all the cycling that we were doing for the for the training for the ride so i managed to pull it off uh, without putting on more than too much weight yeah, exactly i many many wonderful things in many many wonderful cities but i think and you'll see it in the episode of attache 
My favorite thing, I love tacos, and we went to Leo's Taco Truck uh, on La Brea in Venice in LA, and they have the best tacos al pastor I've ever had in my life. They were I was going to leave so that one blank because I thought you were going to pick that. Yeah, it was. And again, I ate a ton of great food while we were there, but that was just, it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. And that it was in a taco truck in a gas station in an otherwise nondescript part of Los Angeles just made it even better. But we are at ABCDEF already. This is wonderful. And the special ingredient for today is something that I hadn't really learned to appreciate until I went to the Middle East and sampled them. Falafel. Yeah. It's something that I agree. I agree. I think it's something that I only got into in the last five years or so, um, even though it's so readily available. I feel like a lot of our friends, well, I was there more than you, but in Hong Kong, we had a lot of Middle Eastern friends, a lot of Lebanese friends who, when I'd go over to their houses, had a lot of this stuff, hummus and stuff like that. I just didn't appreciate it then. Yeah, but me too. now I, it's just like, you know, I'm a big meat eater and this is one of the only meat substitutes. And I think that's an unfair statement to say off the bat because it's not a meat substitute. It's its own thing in its own uh, realm is is how I could eat more vegetarian uh, is the wonderful friedness that is falafel. Yeah, it's well, what is it? Describe it. Uh, it's a deep fried fritter that is uh, made of ground legumes. It's either chickpeas or, or farva beans generally. And that is a contentious issue that we'll get into uh, further down the line. Uh, mixed with herbs and spices, generally cumin and coriander seeds. Um, often when you see you cut open a, a, a falafel ball and it's green, that's, that's not the... The chickpeas of the fava, that's like if they throw in um, cilantro or, or in America, sorry, coriander uh, leaf, um, basil, onion, whatever my, else it might be. And, yeah, and you said it's a, it's, it's, it is a ball. It's about the size of a golf ball. But it's one of those things that like it means the sandwich or it's the delivery thing as well as the item itself. So falafel is the golf, golf ball sized um Middle Eastern equivalent of a hush puppy, basically. And then Can I just it, say for the record that the word fritter makes me deeply uncomfortable? <laughs> I, think I don't know what it is about that word, but I just, I don't like it. I, I, I should like have looked it. up the the um, the language root of the fact that that's a fritter and then also to lose a bunch of money is to fritter it away. I don't know oh, why yeah, that shares the same word. But it means the 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 fried uh, fritter and also potentially the the uh, the sandwich that it's served to you in if it so if it does go down that path as opposed to are there to any other foods that have that where the ingredients is also uh, the name of the thing that it becomes I can't think of any at the top of my head but I'm sure that as soon as we click end podcast it, a thousand <laughs> will come to our I mean, mind burger is one I mean people don't oh, really yeah. say patty as much as they should but I get what you're saying. So this is a predominantly but not exclusively Middle Eastern, Near Eastern food in its origin. It, it, it has, and I think it's important to clarify, it has a contentious ownership, but not necessarily a contentious origin. Yeah, I want to say those are two is, very different things. Yeah, it's, it's got a contentious present as, a, as opposed to a, a contentious past. I think that's that, a much better way of putting it. <laughs> I think that pretty much every food scholar and even the countries themselves involved in that uh, region of the world all um, can trace this back to to uh, Egypt. And um, an interesting article I was reading on on its origin basically said you can't claim something as your own if you don't have that word in your language or can trace it back in your language root. And so the word falafel 
doesn't exist in in Hebrew. It, it doesn't exist in um, certain other forms of Arabic, um, but it does uh, uh, exist in in Coptic and uh, Egyptian, and uh, it comes from the word or this phrase that's falafel, which means full of beans. Or there's a slight variation and in, in, in change in that it means full of pepper, which is a bit strange. But <laughs> full of wo- beans. That's y- pretty funny. Yeah. It means full of beans, and that's what it is. Basically, it's 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 fried chickpeas and fathers, which are are legumes. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, and I think it's it is really important to point out the difference between the the present and the past because you can go anywhere in the Middle East and 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 beyond and find versions of it, and and actually the version the versions don't change that much, but there are subtle differences that that help you kind of place where it comes from in the world. And again, no one is really contesting that probably these originally came from from Coptic Egypt, mm-hmm. but the real contentiousness of the uh, of it a falafel now as a dish is uh whose national dish it is, who it represents, which seems frankly a slightly unnecessary argument to have, but it's it's had and it's had Pretty passionately, from my experience. Yeah, I agree, and I think that you know, I th- the difference between what the filling is um, can also sort of lead to differences in opinion. Um, Egypt being the original, they use uh, fava beans there, whilst most modern people, almost uh, most people, see modern uh, falafel as chickpea. It's an it's an ancient dish. I mean, it, it was around during biblical times. It's at least four oh, yeah. thousand years old. So the fact is, is that it's had a fairly uh, central place in so many people's day to day life because it is a day to day food. It is you know it, it is the way that people start their Cairo day, and and as well all the way across Lebanon, Israel, Syria, even as far as Saudi Arabia, it's yeah. a it's a very common dish. Jordan, and, exactly. And so the 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 issue becomes the fact is. That that it's even though it's associated with Egypt, it spent so much time over so many millennia spending time in other people's cultures and every other people's day to day that it, of course is going to become you know um, sentimental and um, the whole my mother does it best kind of thing. Yeah, uh, and actually, I think that there's a lot of that as well. I mean, if you set aside the uh, the political tensions just by virtue of the fact that they exist, and it it kind of does come back to you put father or you put topping x or or whatever that's not real falafel or you know like you said it's it's almost like pizza in the u.s i was it's just like, about to chili say this. Was... or anything like that like set aside the the broader border disputes which which you know you you've got tons and tons of tension there anyway and then you drop in something as contentious as as ownership and the correct quote-unquote correct uh, you know how you how you put together one of these falafel, and then people get passionate. Yeah, you know? it's it's like uh, the Egyptian pizza, the Egyptian falafel to pizza analogy is like Italy, and then all the rest of them are like you know falafel in in, in uh, Afghanistan is like deep dish, uh, and then Jordan is thin crust, and so on and yeah. so forth. But I think you know you you mentioned this, and it's it's actually a pretty good dividing line between the chickpea and the fava beans. So, you know, like you said, Egypt and a lot of the North African area is primarily fava beans Mm -hmm. and chickpeas are primarily included in Syrian, Lebanese, Jordanian, Israeli, and Palestinian falafel, but not exclusively one or, or t'other. The, the, the place that I went to, I went to a few in Beirut and they were of course incredible. And it was mostly chickpea, 
but also had a little bit of fava. And you know what was interesting was the people that I was with who were were food experts and and guides said that the higher ratio of chickpeas to fava beans, the better. And the fava was just used as a binder, as a filler almost. It was just, it's like sawdust. And they would they would look across the street at another falafel joint and go, they use way more fava beans because it's cheaper. Yeah. Uh, you know, like it was some, like it was a bad thing. But if you go to Egypt or, or North Africa and you have a fava-based uh, falafel, they're still delicious. They taste very, very different, I think. Yeah. I also uh, think that- I, th- I, I thought it was interesting that there was this sort of, oh, they use fava because it's <laughs> cheap. I think that chickpea, as well as a much more finickety ingredient, uh, uh, as somebody who has uh, made- Yes, it is. It has made um, you know falafel at one time in his life, and they just exploded the moment they hit the oil, is that if it, there's a lot more that can go wrong with that. And when you're kicking out thousands of these, you kind of don't want that to happen. And I'm, I'm not sure if we're going to get onto this or not, but there's so many different little tricks of the trade that people do on, you know, even though it is a fast food, it is a very labor-intensive fast food as far as time. Like, are you soaking the beans? Are you cooking the beans? Uh, are you adding baking soda? Are you adding, you know, f- uh, any other f- um, filler as well? And so I totally understand that the lack of chickpea, the less chickpea you have, almost say it's like, I am so good, I don't need that insurance policy. Yeah, I think, uh, absolutely, absolutely. I, but actually, you know, you brought up an, in- an important point about how these are actually produced, be it with chickpeas or with with fava beans, they are not cooked. And actually, in in Yotamek Atalangi's book, Jerusalem, he makes an important point saying, you know, before you read this recipe on how to make falafel, don't panic about not cooking them before. What you do is soak them overnight, these, the, the, the chickpeas, often with baking soda, uh, because if you, if you do cook them, as you say, they fall, the falafel actually fall apart and then you have to add flour or something as a, as a binder. But if you, if you just soak them and they just absorb all, all the water, they're much easier to grind. They're much more uh, receptive, for want of a better word, to the cumin and the coriander that you mentioned earlier to sort of form this this ball uh, because they're both both of the ingredients are ground and then you you shape it into these balls again like the size of actually they're a little bit bigger than a golf ball and you can I've seen it done by hand where you would just roll it as you would almost with play-doh but there's also this tool called an alib falafel or falafel mold and it's just a little bit of a shortcut to do it but what's cool is and I, again I, I don't know if you'd ever seen this actually if you made them before maybe you have I hadn't seen this until I went to Beirut. They're produced in this circular deep fat fryer that has a rim around the outside. And so you pour the uh, uncooked falafel into the fryer and they they, they turn them uh, almost with like chopstick looking things. And then they can pull them out and there's like a, a groove or channel that runs around the rim of the deep fat fryer that allows them to sit and all of the excess oil drips back into the fryer while they cool down and kind of crisp up and dry off. It's pretty cool to see. Yeah. I mean, I could do a whole 
hour on um, you know, frying physics. Um, but basically, um, one of the things that you want to do is you want to save the oil. We should have done frying for fuck. Yeah, uh, running the oil. I mean, we've been looking at fried chicken. There were so many things we could have done for F, uh, and we'll have to do it on the second time around. But um, the oil dropping back into there is really helpful because if you've ever fried something, the first time you put something into clean oil, it never gets really that dark. And you almost think, oh, it looks kind of pal- uh, pale and not great. And so that helps with the seasoning, as it were. You just got to be careful it doesn't start degrading. Uh, also, you got to make sure that it's hot enough because greasy food only happens when you don't have the oil too hot. And the pressure difference, difference and differences sorry, between the outside oil and the inside water content is what causes things to become too, uh, greasy and, and flood. Because if it's not hot enough, the, the water pushing out isn't great enough, and therefore the oil floods into the food and makes greasy food. Um, so these guys are masters at it. And, and if you've ever had a greasy falafel, it's because the oil isn't hot enough. They haven't got it up to speed far enough, uh, fast enough. So don't be hitting up, uh, them up at 1030 on the, on the lunch uh, rush because the oil might not be hot enough yet. There you go. There you go. Wow. See, this is the most educated. I, I learn something every time we do this. Uh, and, and actually, so it looks easy. And actually, the guy that it's, but it's clearly not, there's a, there's a huge amount of science involved. And the chap that, that was taking us around and, and we uh, had his falafel in Beirut, he'd been producing falafel for nine years. That was his, his art, his, mm-hmm. his life's work. And he, was very, very good at it. He made it look effortless, but clearly it wasn't. And there's so much tinkering with the spices and everything that goes into it. And and Lebanon is one of those places where falafel is a way of life. It's it's art. There's there's a whole area of the town where there's they have these um very, very tense relationships between all of these falafel vendors about, you know, there was two brothers who had a place and then they got into a fight about how to produce the falafels. So the brother opened a competing falafel literally right next door, and they still haven't spoken to this to this day. Um, so Lebanon, again, going back to the to the places where you can find this, it's it's ever present there. I was again reading uh, Ottolenghi's book that while it's the un- it's not the national dish necessarily of of Lebanon, it is actually maybe unofficially the national dish of Egypt. And this is kind of ironic of Palestine and Israel. Well, and not even unofficially with Israel. They 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 took that in a in a in a big bad way. Uh, I was reading an article about um, their 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 in, was it the internal culture minister uh, who was getting flack from other countries for how aggressively they've claimed it as their own. No, no. I mean, not only were they getting flack, they were sued. Yeah, they were sued for copyright infringement of the of the falafel, which is, you know, I think that that's. That's you know taking on the um, other issues that that, <laughs> that 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 region is battling. But what was interesting is that to to me is that uh, Yote Montalengi and Sammy Tamimi, who is the co-author uh, of this particular book and also one of the partners in his restaurant business, they grew up on different sides of Jerusalem, one on eastern in East Jerusalem, one in West Jerusalem. But they both had falafel as staples of their otherwise very different childhoods. And what I think is so neat about that is that it kind of transcended all of the tension that was happening otherwise, and it was what people just ate because it is this, you know, as you said, it's like it's an on-the-go food. And actually, the Israeli version 
is slightly different in the the sandwich application of the word, which we'll get into in a minute, because there's lots of different ways of, of, of doing it. But how you construct it into a sandwich is, is really, really critical. So as you mentioned at the top of the show, it's one of those weird things where the ingredient is also the end product. And you can eat a falafel by itself, just the little golf pole F word, I'm not going to say it, uh, <laughs> fritter, 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 fritter. Uh, and it's fine. They're delicious. But what really makes it is when you build this sandwich and sandwich in the loosest sense of the word. But the basic definition would be a pocketed pita, which almost like a just, you know, a circular flatbread, but it's got a pouch into which, you know, allowing for maximum stuffage. Mm -hmm. And you have the falafel in there, obviously, and it's usually maybe two or three fresh herbs and in in beirut it was mint fresh mint which just took the whole thing to another level it was really really delicious refreshing crispy uh pickles and what we all know is pickles so pickled cucumbers fresh tomatoes pickled turnips which are the most extraordinary color they're like a fuchsia like pink strips little tiny french fries Mm -hmm. uh they were, which are delicious as well, at a lovely crunch and and freshness. Tahini, which is the uh, savory kind of yogurty sauce that everybody knows and loves, uh, and an optional hot sauce. And I think you're mental if you exclude the hot sauce. Uh, and you and they all of that gets stuffed in. It's wrapped into a little tight uh, cylinder, sometimes open, mostly closed. And it's sort of the the hot falafel, the cool fresh uh, produce ingredients. The very cool tahini, and it's it is just wonderful. And I've had bad versions of that sandwich with not fresh ingredients, and they're awful. But if you get them well made, they are one of the most satisfying street foods I've ever had anywhere in the world. Wow, it's that sounds a little different than what I usually have, but I'm I definitely want to try that because it's a fairly easy thing to make at home if you can get your falafel making skills down. Everything else is is so um, it's just fresh produce basically, and yeah. your your form of pocket bread. Yeah, exactly. But what, that's an important point because if you go to the grocery store, and what I've noticed is that the the pitas are much thicker than the ones that we had in Beirut. These were very malleable, almost like a tortilla, if not thinner. They yeah. could be and so I watched they could a, be rolled up. a documentary about it. And this is going to sound so, so strange. I watched a documentary about Egyptian bread and uh, talking about how it's like one of the oldest uh, bread recipes in the world. And, and, it, and uh, during the sort of Arab Spring uprising, one of the, the chants was freedom, liberty, and bread. That was sort of the thing. Um, Those was, are all very important things. Yeah, it was actually freedom, social justice, and bread. But anyway. Um, also the, important. The bread that was so ubiquitous to Egyptian life was this um, dough that that puffed up and was cooked only in a few minutes. And it looks like a pita bread, but imagine it being, you know, a th- almost a fifth of the thickness of a pita bread. And so I think that's a very common, regular, just workman's bread throughout that area. And, yeah. and pita is just a very different thing. Yeah. And it's it, it seems to be you know, if you if you go to, and this is one of the many, 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 many reasons why I love California, you go to any grocery store, not necessarily a Mexican grocery store, but there will be a whole half aisle or at the very least an end cap dedicated to tortillas. And they are every size, every thickness, every base ingredient, corn, flour, mixed, whole wheat, even gluten-free ones are serviceable. So 
the the pita is going to be the same. It's going to run the gamut. But the ones I had in Beirut were much thinner than the ones I've seen available in the, in Western Western supermarkets. But it was fantastic. I had, I've, like I said, I've had bad ones that were just not good. In Israel, they have the 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 man or mana. I don't really know how you pronounce it. Falafel, which is again the pita pocket with falafel, but the other ingredient is potato chips. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and you know what's interesting? So it sounds bizarre, but when we were in Dubai filming episode of Attaché, our wonderful guide Arva from from Frying Pan Adventures, we spent almost the entire time in old Dubai, not the new Dubai, which is not to everybody's taste. And we had this this breakfast wrap, which was again unleavened bread with a little bit of weirdly mayo, scrambled egg, and ketchup, and these things called chips Omani, which are basically potato chips from Oman, crushed up, rolled up, and it was such a good breakfast treat. It was like a like a little breakfast burrito from from old Dubai, and it was wonderful. So adding crisps or potato chips is not uncommon in that part of the world, and I can imagine that it, was, it would be really, really good. And that application of falafel was brought to Israel by uh, Yemeni Jews in the first half of the 20th century. So you do get, especially in the construction of the sandwich, all these different regional uh varieties which is what makes it so interesting i think that i'm i'd be very interested to try that um i feel like if i was just doing that myself and someone saw me take a a falafel sandwich and then crush some uh, some lays on top of that people might like slap out of my hand for for being heresy but uh hey well I can... you can say no man the yemeni jews brought this to israel in the 50s so i think uh <laughs> i think you're fine there but i mean you know you look at you look at a california burrito yep. which is a burrito with uh french fries instead of rice you know, that sounds horrific in concept, but it's actually absolutely wonderful. And you wonder so why think, we have a heart problem in this country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true, but it's it's good. I like them. And then, I mean, I think what we, what we can touch upon is the fact is that this, the falafel has been something that has really exploded over the world culinary scene over the last like 20 to 30 years basically anywhere that it was a staple of the diet and then we saw uh large areas of, of migration and and sort of one of those catch-all areas in in europe especially uh, for a lot of um, mediterranean and, and middle eastern food uh is germany and i know you were just there in, in berlin and, and so what's the what's the variation on on, on falafel uh in in deutschland you're you're right because I think up until you know the later part of the 20, 20th century falafel and falafel sandwiches was really didn't find its way outside of middle eastern restaurants and and neighborhoods and jewish neighborhoods throughout the world but it has become popular and I think there's a theory as to why that's happened which we'll touch on later but yes falafel and falafel sandwiches are very popular in germany and especially in berlin which has a relatively large arab near eastern population for a bunch of different reasons but there was an influx of of migrant workers in the 1970s which they brought all their wonderful food with them including doner kebabs but in berlin there's the uh part of kreuzberg which has been dubbed um, falafel village because there's so many falafel joints <laughs> there as well and actually the weird again talking about regional variations it's not the german variety but it is an option in germany to have this sweet uh mango sauce instead of some of the more salty relishes or even in in place of um <clears throat> 
uh, the tahini. Yeah, so I found this place in San Francisco that I've been going to quite a lot recently called um, Sababa in the techni- uh, the financial area district kind of near Chinatown uh, in San Francisco. And um, it's sort of like a, I don't want to say high end, but it's like, you know, fast food for falafel and falafel bowls and that kind of stuff. But they have an area of condiments that you can get on your way out and it's all the pickled vegetables and stuff like that. But then they have two sauces and one of them that you can just, is on pump, like, you know, at a ketchup thing is a sweet mango sauce and it's incredible um and and they claim to be um i was looking them up and they are an israeli-based um falafel company uh or restaurant so you know that's an interesting interesting that's interesting i wonder if it's one of the things that has flowed back from from Germany, or they met in the middle somewhere yeah, on their I'll way over to the ask Atlantic. Them next time, like <clears throat> next time I go in, I'll be like, "Hey, oh, by the way, we did a podcast about falafel. Let us know what we got wrong." <laughs> but like, yeah, uh, I would love to. I mean, and again, you know, we're we're not experts; we're just enthusiasts yes. about all of the stuff that we cover. So we're always we welcome uh, any any but corrections. It, to and your we'll point, it's freaking ph- phenomenal. The uh, the sweet mango sauce. It's 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 exactly what makes it all come together without being you know it, it's a nice sauce that isn't chili sauce that's not uh you know uh, oils um but it really is just i don't know it's just so different yeah it is and i i i think it's again it's the same with salsa certain people like certain types of salsa to accompany whatever mexican treat they're enjoying and i think this is probably something similar of course hummus is a staple of falafel they go hand in hand uh, either together in a sandwich or as part of a mezzo, which actually we kind of failed to mention that falafel is a staple of mezzo, which if you're not familiar is a, which you probably are, it's like tapas. It's the accompaniments that you have with your beers and your whatever alcohol you happen to be drinking. That's mm-hmm. that's exactly what it is. And there's like 25 core mezzo components and falafel and hummus are, are, are part of them. They're, they're like the cornerstones of it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think that hummus is um, something that we could spend an entire episode on. So let's not dive down that rabbit hole too much on this one. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love hummus. Good hummus is really, really hard to beat. And I think it's, anyway, don't get me started on hummus. I love it too much. Um, but yeah, it's a, it is very popular in Germany. It's probably got the most kind of prevalent adoption outside of the of the middle east and the near east of any other country it's it's been taken on by the middle classes of the west for a couple of reasons and i quite like this you know you 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 can't go anywhere and 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 not see falafel it's everywhere you can get it at flipping pret you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and it's that's partly because it is as you said vegetarian so there's an implied sense of healthfulness there and and less guilt when you consume it uh it's high in protein and complex carbs it's it's uh it's got a lot of fiber so it'll keep you regular so it is considered a health food in the west and that's kind of what we were sold on when it first crossed into the to to the west in the 70s and 80s and it was marketed as such but the the kind of the funny thing is that's only partially accurate because yeah chickpeas are pretty good for you they're low in fat there's no cholesterol in them but you're frying these things yep. in oil <laughs> yep yeah exactly so you're absorbing all this fat you know fat isn't necessarily a bad thing but to suggest that that that, that falafel or some kind of superfood and you should go on the falafel diet if you want to 
lose all this weight. It's just preposterous and hilarious. Yeah, it's a bit of a um, false analogy. I mean, I can say that fish is the most, uh, fish is incredibly good for you, omega-3 oils and all that fun stuff, uh, and therefore justify that I can eat fish and chips for the rest of my life. Uh, you know, I'm going to die. Uh, so that's the thing is uh, it's the ingredients are good for you, but the application, if it's done right and you don't eat too much of it, you know, it's a, it's a good fit. Well, the guy... Um that uh, whose falafel we ate in in Beirut told us he ate falafel every day, and he looked fine. Yeah. Well, also so, it's also <laughs> what is it? Moderation. It's the old Michael Pollan quote: eat good, eat real food, not too much, mostly vegetables. Like if you live by that, whatever you eat, you're going to be okay. Yeah. No, I I I think that that's true. I I absolutely agree with that. And I would eat falafel every day. I again, you know, and I don't know if there are many foods. Perhaps you can suggest some that. More often than not, I've had bad versions of falafel. Oh, I get what you're saying. So like it's it's amazing. Falafel, when it's done well, is one of my all-time favorite foods. But more often than not, it's been crap. What is a and I, what is a bastardization food or food that has basically become so either homogenized, um, but there's still ethereal moments of it, or just there's so much to screw up that you can likely Perhaps do it really a, bad. Burgers, I think, is probably one yeah, of them. Yeah, burgers, burgers, French fries, for me, are the two top ones. I also think a steak is is one. Uh, I went to a, I, I, again, you'd, you'd think it was one of those things where the base construct of falafel is so set in stone and so easy to, to do in theory that it can't be that hard to get reasonably close to the mark anywhere in the world there's none of these ingredients are hard to get anywhere yeah, but, in the world but this is a perfect example of application and skill over ingredients yes um, and and taking something producing it in a factory distributing it to a bunch of you know fast casual eateries who then reanimate it and serve it yeah and then, how many, and then you, how many you just get a fat mouthful of disappointment yeah how many falafels came in powder form to that restaurant that they needed to reconstitute you're gonna have some issues there but then back to my point about you know whether or not that they're using um you know was a craftsman's only as good as his tools if they're using the wrong kind of thing to cook with or form or store or back to my original point the oil is not the right temperature or has started to to degrade you're going to have a bad time yeah. <laughs> to quote South Park. It's a French fries. Uh, to our point. Yeah, no, I, I think it's true. I mean, I've, I've got bad falafel and falafel sandwiches in many, many corners of the world. And I've also had transcendent ones in the most unex, you know, expected places. The places I have had them obviously are the Middle East. I've had a great one in New York. I've had a terrible one in Manchester. And, it, and, and frankly, you'll have to ha uh, ask Sir Nick Wilkinson about this. The one I had in Berlin, even though it was in a very quote unquote authentic place, was a little bit meh. There was, it was too messy and fell apart. Just wasn't, wasn't very good. So I don't think geography precludes quality in this instance. No, of course not. And I, I challenge any people that say you can't have a good X outside of 
why or, or something like that. The only exception to that rule is you can't get good Mexican east of the Rockies, but that's a separate conversation. But my point is, like, there's always people in the world of globalization and 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 people traveling that you're gonna you you can always find. That's why I know that you encourage us on Tashe just to get out there and see what's in your local area. But like, yeah. you never know. Like some of the best beer I've had is in places I don't fully expect to find it old wine. I mean, India has wine now and they do a fantastic, uh, uh, some fantastic reds from the foothills of the Himalayas. I'm just like, what the hell's going on there? Like, you know, yeah, that kind of no, stuff. I, I think skill skills are transportable. And I think that, uh, we've, we've all learned to learn and we have the tools and the, uh, information at our fingertips to, to do that. But, um, you know, and again, another place, of course, I've had great falafel is is Israel. I went to a place which specialized in shawarma, and I was like, those they were also famous for their falafel, but I had this incredibly beautiful plate of shawarma, and wanted to try the falafel. And I'll I'll find the name of the place and I'll look at and I'll post it because it was great. And I went up and I ordered a thing of falafel. I said, you know, you guys are famous for your falafel. I just needed to try it, so they put it in almost like a little um, ice cream cup six or seven of these things right out of the fryer. I was like, okay, cool. How much? And I'm like, no, 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 man. Welcome. Enjoy. <laughs> and they were and like, you sat outside and it was warm and everybody was smiling. And, you know, you look around you and you, you could, there was, it was tension. It was my first time in Israel. And I thought that that was a, a nice, a nice gesture for, to a visitor. But yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, all over the world, I think you can, you can get it. I have not met anybody now that I think about it. That doesn't like falafel. Yeah, I think it's a great leveler because if you're a vegetarian, you can eat it. it, it it's a it's a filler in the sense of like a lot of sandwiches. Like you can have a uh, like a sandwich with that as the main part of it, and so it works on both sides of the vegetarian meat eating spectrum. And also people that are or just new to the cuisine. I feel like a lot of people that are new to Middle Eastern cuisine, falafel is the gateway drug, and therefore it is a that and hummus and a basically, you know, hand in hand, as we mentioned. So I think that it is something that, uh, unless it's bad, it's a hard time to not like. Yeah. I, th- like I think fried things. Lo- <laughs> yeah, this is also true. I think a lot of people um, may be indifferent to it, but I don't understand how you could not, like, just be vehemently against it. It is, it's so popular all over the world that, actually, it's so popular, especially in the Middle East, that even the, the good folks at McDonald's introduced the muk falafel in Egypt and other places as a breakfast menu item, which is interesting. Hmm. Um, I don't know if it was any good. Well, if yeah, you've ever and tried it, it's no longer, please tell us. It's no longer in play, so I wonder how how successful it was. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to know. And, and it kind of goes back to our point uh, about are you able to kind of commoditize this type of thing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's something that, again, like, Probably I think Probably that- not. Although the techniques are are fairly ubiquitous, um, mass production of it in a centralized location and then distribution is probably not going to be lending itself to a quality product. Yeah, I mean, it lasted 10 years in Israel, the McFalafel. But what I don't understand is when you can go to basically any, you know, by lane or, or street in Certainly, on the only experiences of it are in Israel and in, in in Beirut. You are never more than a stone's throw away from a place that's going to charge you a buck for four of them, and mm-hmm. they'll be handmade and they'll be amazing. Why would you go to McDonald's? I mean, there's nothing wrong with McDonald's, but why would you go to McDonald's when you could get 
something that is much, much better produced fresh in front of you. And it's not like, you know, people make the argument about burgers, but like a Big Mac costs four dollars versus if you go to a high-end place to get a burger cost 16 to 17 dollars falafel no matter where you're going is going to be cheap yeah yeah exactly the highest quality of falafel is still going to be cheap exactly that whole thing that whole argument goes out the window the the burger thing so yeah i i think i would be interested to hear from anybody who doesn't like falafel and i want to know what's wrong with you (laughs) and the time will be there yeah and i will convince you if it's the last (laughs) thing i do the falafel are amazing i i was worried actually to be completely honest that we weren't going to have enough to talk about for this episode or that it was going to be a little bit you know esoteric but it is it has a complex background for such a simple dish and it's i just love them I think they're great. I agree. Um, and then, you know, the important question of the day, what would you have with it? What would you drink with it? I don't know the answer to this question, except quite sweet mint tea. Well, that's the thing is I was, was going to say, because you've done a little bit more traveling in the Middle East recently than I have and the Near East. Um, I, I would have thought that there might be just a go-to pairing that is is different maybe well, regionally, but like tea is a big one. Mint tea makes sense. Uh, I love I love mint tea, uh, but what's as we mentioned a little bit ago, it is falafel traditionally is part of of a mezza, and you tend to have um, mezza with with alcohol. So, but not uh, beer, but um, distilled. So raki arak. Okay, yeah, that makes I, sense. I can't uzo rakia, all that stuff. So high it pr- is high proof, not that. Like not flavorful is the wrong word. High proof, but somewhat um, uh, neutral in flavor alcohols. Besides, yeah, yeah. besides a couple of the more aniseed flavored ones there you mentioned. Yeah, I I mean you can have it with beer, and I think it that's probably true. But I'm interested, and this is the dot that I I couldn't connect is the muk falafel apparently was on the breakfast menu, but it falafel in general is part of a mezza thing so there's a disconnect there that i haven't been able to reconnect but i'd be interested to hear if anybody knows yeah i think that i think people might be getting it i've seen it um in some of the research i did that a lot of people grab it uh, in egypt uh, on the way to work um and so maybe that's uh, just the regional differences um again here's another question what other food item works at breakfast lunch and dinner besides bacon Pizza. P- eh. Cold, Cold pizza. pizza. Yeah. Um, but bacon uh, works at all three. Bacon. Yep. Yeah. Uh, there aren't many. Yeah. Alex scolded me uh, in, in, in Massachusetts for getting a chicken fried steak uh, for breakfast uh, one day. And uh, so I think your rule is that you're not a fan <laughs> of uh, chicken fried steak, even though it works for lunch and dinner as well. I have not learned to appreciate chicken fried steak because I feel like it's the, the crappiest cut of meat pounded to submission and i suppose you can chicken fry anything and it'll be good but yeah. Uh, yeah there there are so many other american breakfast staples that i would pick ahead of chicken fried steak it's probably <laughs> the most diplomatic way of putting that it's foul nice i enjoy <laughs> it so to- i think well here's the thing falafel goes with any drink yes i think so i think, I think unless somebody tells us no you're wrong and here's the national drink of 
Israel that should be paired with the national, you know, quote unquote, food of Israel, you know, let us know. Um, but I think that this is this is a fairly open conversation. And it's, it's, it's so spread that I would love to hear if anybody has a, you know, do they put mayonnaise on it in Holland? I feel like that's kind of a safe bet there or do they do garlic aioli somewhere um yeah I, it i'm sure that there's so many regional variations and i'd love to know to know more about them um because that's what makes food like this so great yeah. you know you get the tweaks and you get the little variations and and that's what that's a wonderful thing that's that's what brings them all to life um hisham from who is my one of my wonderful guides uh he's a food blogger in beirut if you're listening, and I hope you are, I want to know what mistakes we made. And uh, <laughs> those guys are wonderful. They are from Taste Lebanon, who are a wonderful um, food tour company in Beirut and, and the broader Lebanon area. So if you're ever there, look those guys up. Nice. Uh, I have one quick uh, shout out to do before before wrapping up. Uh, I think we've said everything within our in our uh, combined knowledges about falafel and, and maybe we'll revisit this in, in the next episode. But uh, one quick shout out was uh, on my, one of my last days in, in, in uh, Massachusetts, uh, we had friends come over to the, the house we were staying in, but uh, sadly I was uh, violently unwell um, and, 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 and crying myself <laughs> to sleep. Not just unwell, yes. violently unwell. Yeah, crying myself to sleep in, in the uh, in the back room. But one of our friends uh, came over, uh, Ray, if you're listening, and I could hear through the through the door uh, between my my moans and groans uh, that you that you're a listener, and I greatly appreciate that. Um, but I heard one question you had was like, "How does Will know all this stuff off the top of his head?" And I was like, "We don't. <laughs> like, I know quite a bit off the top of my head, but uh, the, we do a lot of research on this kind of stuff. So thank you for the praise. But uh, you know, we do a lot to make sure that we are somewhat accurate on this stuff. Uh, but or at least touch on a bunch of different points. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and one last thing, I was. The, I was cooking for a friend the other day. He had a housewarming up in Sacramento, and so I, I, I offered to cook uh, sort of as my housewarming gift. And uh, uh, some people came in, and I didn't know who they were. And my friend introduced me. He's like, oh, you're the person that does the podcast. I'm just like, yeah. Wow, people listen to this. <laughs> so that's always a little shocking. It feels like Alex and I are just talking at each other, uh, you know, about food, which we do whether or not we're recording or not. So it's always interesting to hear people outside of our uh, direct uh, sphere of influence are, are listening and digging this. So thanks again. Uh, just wanted to round out with those two nice comments. No, thank you, guys. And, th and thank you for listening. Please tell your friends. <laughs> yes, and we'll try and get back into a bit more of a regular schedule. Uh, weirdly, yes. since Alex is now back in England and I'm now back in California, um, it actually makes it a little bit easier. Um, and stand by for some some interesting guests um, and some fun um, potential sections we're going to work on. So uh, I think uh, Gar, uh, for for G E, well, what do we got left? G E. Why am I drawing a blank? No, what was that? The G. I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> oh well i'm dyslexic leave me alone dyslexia so we yeah ghi uh we have a number of ideas but we have not settled on anything so if uh you want to to suggest one i know somebody and i'll i'll go back and look on twitter who it was was it graham kingshot perhaps suggested herbs herbs Herbs, herbs for H. Mm -hmm. Good idea. Yes. Good idea. Monstrous episode that would be. Uh, but again, keep them coming for future episodes because we want to cover the things you want to know about. All right, guys. Well, uh, thanks for listening and uh, eat well. Good eats. Oh, wait. <laughs> Copyright. 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 <laughs>